This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. We've got to graduate inside emergency management community and realize that the emergency manager is not just, you know, possibly a first responder in their local community, but they may come into hundreds of millions of dollars that they have to help local officials understand how to, how to utilize. Welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVos speaking. Today, we're going to be talking to FEMA Administrator Brock Long, and it's pretty exciting to have him on talking directly to emergency managers about the direction of FEMA, his ideas of what an emergency manager really is and should be and could be. You know, some of the areas that we really kind of focused on in this conversation was internships and and how through internships you can uh, develop emergency managers from the ground up. The cool part about Brock is that he is a pure emergency manager. He was never a first responder, didn't come from from that side of of the equation. He was an emergency manager from when he graduated from college and obviously still is, right? You know, it's a little bit different, uh, a different idea. A couple things that he really wants to, to focus on here is the uh, non-Stafford Act disasters, uh, revamping the Stafford Act, you know, that type of stuff. An emergency manager in academy, and I'll let him kind of talk about that, and I don't want to get too into detail of what I spoke about, but uh, that was kind of exciting. And then the other idea, too, is having IMT teams be kind of like the way the USAR teams are set up. Trends in, in emergency management. In Southern California, there were some mudslides uh, that killed um, a handful of people and destroyed a bunch of homes. Had about 300 people um, stuck in there. Uh, the 101 freeway is closed down. So it was pretty devastating. So it was really the brief flow. And if you've seen the video of it, you, you could see how devastating it was. One of the things that came out of this thing, though, is that some of the residents are complaining that emergency management didn't do enough in the warning. And the evacuation was set out as being a, a a volunteer evacuation. To boot, this was the same area that was evacuated due to the wildfires just a few weeks ago. So I think some people were uh, definitely just over leaving their home. And when it came out as a voluntary evacuation, they just didn't take heed. And I think we're going to have an issue going forward with this here. Let's see how it plays out. Where, what do we talk about with evacuations, mandatory versus volunteer? What does that mean to the messaging um, to the people that are involved? If you remember, we just had an episode uh, talking about messaging to people and what it means to them compared to what it means to us. So I think that's something we should really keep an eye on. i see how that plays out. I'm excited to have you guys here again. If you uh, could, go into the common area of your iTunes or however you listen to the podcast and just tell us how you're doing. Again, if you're listening to this from one of those devices and haven't been to the website, it's uh, www.emweekly.com. We also have the Ask Todd button over there. And you can also comment on EM Weekly as well. Speaking of Ask Todd, a question came out regarding internships, mentorships, and the like. And one of the guys who reached out to us uh, was asking regarding if we could become a mentor. And I had to think about that for a little bit of exactly what did he mean. 
had a conversation with the young man, uh, and he just wasn't really right there at the point to where a mentorship would uh, pay out. However, I think that concept is really kind of cool. He is a guy that was looking to get into emergency management, and he was just starting out his education. He hasn't completed his bachelor's degree, worked some volunteer stuff, but was really interested, or is really interested, in emergency management. I think an internship would do well for him, uh, and depending on what he wants to go into. I think the really difference between the internship and the mentorship, and this is just my opinion, and if you disagree with me, please let me know, is I think internship is where you go and learn what the business is about, and the mentorship is more along the lines of how do we get you to the next level of being a practitioner in emergency management. And I think that if we had internships uh, available for people, which I know there are out there, and if we had uh, a mentorship program, I think that that would be uh, a really kind of a cool idea to be able to bring people up to the next level, whether if it's uh, uh, an official mentorship program or if it's if it's not. So I think that's something we should discuss a little bit as in the industry, whether we do it through like IEM or through other local state organizations for emergency management. I like the idea of, of having the EM mentor of getting a person who's brand new and getting somebody who's seasoned and knows what's going on and get them under their wing and, and, and kind of help that person uh, through that process. That's so sort of the take from Ask Todd. I appreciate the question. All right, well, enough of me talking. Let's uh, listen to the interview with FEMA Administrator Brock Long. Hi, and uh, today I'm excited to have with me uh, FEMA Administrator Brock Long, who is a true emergency manager. Uh, if you guys don't know much about him, uh, he came from uh, North Carolina and then ended up in Georgia, which is a question I'm going to ask him here shortly. And going from there, uh, he actually was on some pretty extensive and large scale disasters. And the, the biggest one that I think everybody here can really get their minds around is the Deepwater Horizon, which was an amazing, uh, crazy response. If you've ever been to any of the, debrief- the debriefings on that, it's just a, it's one of those uh, emergency management career pinnacle nightmares and also uh, a way to see how Instant Command and Unified Command works. So, Brock, welcome to Ian Wheatley. Hey, glad to be here, Todd. Thank you for uh, uh, allowing me to be on uh, on this podcast. Thank you. How did you get into emergency management? Todd, that's a great question. Uh, for me, it was divine intervention. I think emergency management uh, found me. Uh, and the reason I say that is, is that when I was attending um, Appalachian State University for uh, my MPA, I had a conversation with a classmate uh, in the hallway and asked um, – his name was Eddie Smith. He's um, he's with the city of Kannapolis, and he and I asked him what he did for his internship that summer, and he said he had done it with uh, New Hanover County, North Carolina Emergency Management Agency, and started talking to me, and I became more and more interested in the conversation and followed up, and um, fortunately, I was able to make the same connection with New Hanover County, and uh, the following summer, I did an internship in emergency management at the local level, and I've never looked back. I've, I've spent my whole career uh, in emergency management, which is, which is pretty rare. How did you end up in Georgia from, from North Carolina? Oddly enough, I uh, sent my resume to several state emergency management agencies uh, in states I thought I wanted to live in. And Georgia Emergency Management Agency was the first one to respond to um, you know, me sending the, the, the resumes that were there. They were setting up an innovative school safety program because Georgia ranked uh, number one in the country at the time. This was all before Columbine. They ranked number one in the country 
for the, uh, the most amount of deaths in schools. And so they set up an innovative school safety program that I got in on the ground floor of and uh, served as a school safety coordinator and local emergency operations planner in that capacity. And, and again, it was all before Columbine, so it was pretty interesting. And then from there, uh, I became a hurricane program manager. I was um, uh, with Georgia Emergency Management Agency and experienced Hurricane Floyd in 1999. And then I interviewed with FEMA Region 4 on the morning of 9-11, but uh, eventually became uh, the hurricane program manager in, in charge of a lot of evacuation planning and running a couple of response teams known as the Hurricane Liaison Team down at the National Hurricane Center, uh, as well as helping to establish what's now known as the Evacuation Liaison Team that USDOT runs for for on behalf of FEMA. You're doing this and then somehow or another you get wrapped up into the deep water horizon. How did you feel when you got tapped on the shoulder for that? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I always joke that every time I change jobs, something catastrophic happens. And uh, as you can see, I, uh, I was in office <laughs> two months as FEMA administrator and, and we got hit with an unprecedented amount of events. But yeah, so, so I was appointed by Governor Bob Riley in Alabama to be Alabama's emergency management director. And uh, basically, one of the events, uh, not only uh, did we go through Deepwater Horizon, but we also had H1N1 at the time. So there were two very unique events that were taking place that I was hit with. But Deepwater Horizon was incredibly complex. And, you know, what the, the takeaway from Deepwater Horizon is, is that we got a lot of work to do, in, in my opinion, on, on the non-Stafford, you know, non-Stafford disasters in this country as to who takes the leadership role and making sure that we fine-tune you know, how incident command works for these unique events. One of the things that I think is important for emergency management is the professionalization of our profession, right? And as we know, like you said, you are one of the, the rare ones where you've been in EM for your entire career, but you see a lot of, um, and, and I'm using this term, not in a derogatory term because I'm one of them, but you see a lot of these guys who are retreads from either fire, EMS, police, that get into EM as a second career or as a retirement career where they think they can come in and just start doing the stuff up in the field. I'm excited to see a lot of the education programs that are coming in, kind of like University of Albany, where the governor there thought that it was important to start a program uh, at that level uh, in emergency management. Obviously, University of Delaware has been doing it for a long time, but they're changing their focus from just the strict uh, social um, impacts of disasters into actual disaster management. You know, and, and um, you see them at the local community colleges as well, going up all the way to PhD programs now. That being said, what can we do as a profession to help professionalize EM? One one follow up on that is that I, I heard that you were interested in doing like an FBI type academy for emergency managers, and how would that look? Todd, it's an excellent question. So. There are a lot of answers to this question, uh, but from where I sit, as a result of going through this unprecedented 2017 disaster calendar year, uh, the one thing that stands out to me more than any is, is we need highly trained people rather than stuff. And, you know, and, and it's not just within FEMA. You know, at one point, uh, a majority, I think 85% of our entire agency was deployed out in the field at one point during the hurricane season. And... The bottom line is, is that we have to continue to find ways to improve consistent and good training uh, and cross training down not only through the federal government, through the Department of Homeland Security surge capacity, but going down towards the state and local level. And so we're, we're actively, as a result of going through the 2017 disaster year, you know, looking at how we actually 
may change the IMAT team concepts to go possibly to more of a USAR team concept to where we start formulating 20 or 30 IMAT teams uh, within each state and local uh, or local jurisdictions that we can call upon for additional staff support. One of the things that I think FEMA needs to work on in regards to the FBI Academy vision is that I fully believe that we need to bring in people you know, if we, if we can bring people in at a consistent level and that change the entire, explode the entire way that we hire inside the agency so that we're not, you know, hiring people at high level positions, but that actually we're cultivating people all the way up through the organization. And so if we look at a, a true academy style hiring process, it does a couple things. It creates camaraderie within the agency. It completes, you know, it creates consistency within the training. And what I ultimately would love to be able to do is is recruiting classes, you know, all walks of life, being able to recruit in classes, send them to Emmitsburg for 16 weeks to do true academy-style training, learning all things Stafford Act, all things 2CFR, all things FEMA policy, all things case study, you know, running through the different directorates and the different phases of emergency management to understand not only the policies but the training needs, the goals and the gaps that we have to overcome. And then ultimately, uh, you know, once they graduate from the academy, you send them out into the field. So I have an, a, a larger vision of creating state integration teams where it's time to break down the role, you know, the, the walls of the FEMA regional office. And I would like to be part of the conversation inside state agencies and embed staff, a multidiscipline staff inside state agencies and eventually larger cities to where, you know, we're we're being able to execute Blue Sky Day, preparedness, mitigation functions, training and exercise functions were a part of the everyday conversation and not just being invited once a federal disaster declaration hits the, you know, uh, comes into place. And so mm -hmm. I want to be part of the Blue Sky Day conversation as well as have staff there to quickly roll over into uh, incident management at that state and local level, similar to the way the FBI looks. So once you graduate from an academy, it would be great to be able to send emergency managers out to one of these state integration teams for three to five years so that they fully understand how state and local governments receive FEMA assistance of all types uh, and, and guidance, how to implement that. And then once they're done there, you know, with the state integration teams, then hopefully they're allowed to apply to one of the three FEMA regions, you know, uh, or one of the 10 FEMA regions that they want to serve in. And we put them where they're most aligned and where that we think they'll perform great. Uh, and then they work their way up to, to uh, headquarters to actually design policies and programs and, and the way forward. So it's a grand vision. It's a lot that may not be able to get put into place in four years, but at least I can start to lay the foundation for a grander vision for how this agency looks in the future. That's something I could definitely get behind because, the, you know, we all know in emergency management that disaster is local. You know, um, sometimes I think that the, the residents and the citizens of the United States I believe that FEMA comes in on a white horse and is going to have all the answers to everything. And, and I know that you're going through that right now with Puerto Rico and, and some of the issues that are going down there. How do we help um, from the federal level the locals uh, do a better job of understanding uh, emergency management in the sense of their roles and responsibilities in the, in the response and the recovery? Well, at the, at the local and state level, I think that I think that resiliency lies in the hands of local elected officials, and I believe that as a result of going through the 2017 disaster year, that state representatives, state legislatures, and local elected officials need to hit the reset button and take a look at whether or not they're fully funding their local and state emergency management agencies, 
with proper staffing and equipment. This is the trend and we're going to go in and see more disasters. Well, then budgets and emphasis needs to reflect that. Anytime that FEMA is the primary and, you know, sole responder into a, into a location, that's not optimal. I believe uh, that, you know, the, the proper disaster response and recovery should be federally supported, state managed and locally executed. I believe that we also have to, to graduate past just writing plans to meet uh, accreditation standards. We need to operationalize these plans. We need to overcome a lot of the problems or, or OIG recommendations or negative audit findings that we have. We have to overcome those on Blue Sky Day by properly setting up contracts ahead of time and you know setting up pre-event contracts, um, making sure that we can actually execute. And if we can't execute from a human capital or physical standpoint, then what's the next way we're going to use mutual aid or, you know, call upon assistance in, a, in another way. So there's a lot that we have to work on. But again, I don't own a state or a local government's response to recovery. You are in charge. My goal is to help you at the state and local level achieve your response and recovery and preparedness goals. I had a conversation with your predecessor regarding the ESFs and that how some states and the state that I particularly reside in, um, doesn't really put really put stock into the ESFs, but I, I do see it as being a a quality issue specifically with with uh, training and whatnot, and knowing that who you're going to get on, on the typing type thing. Do you think that we should really be pushing that type of training and function from into each state to make it mandated, or do you do you still think that the state should be able to choose to go ESF or not? I come from the school where I get really nervous about mandating what a state or local government should do. Uh, largely, the, the direction that I would like us to move is how do we help you achieve your goals? I don't know what's mm-hmm. best for your state or your local jurisdiction. I may be able to, and from my position, I do have a responsibility to recognize national gaps where national gaps exist and start forcing conversation and action to be taken to overcome those gaps as I see them, if there's trends that are taking place. But largely, I want to circle back to you know, creating consistency and doing true integration planning. You know, our hope is to within the next 30, 60 days to really start rolling out um, a federal footprint inside these state agencies into states that want them through these integration teams. And so we're, we're picking a few states where we'd like to pilot this um, to where we come in and we're actually helping you to do the things that I just mentioned, like set up the proper pre-event contracts to do debris or staff augmentation, um, writing disaster cost recovery plans. You know, we've got to graduate inside emergency management community and realize that the emergency manager is not just, you know, possibly a first responder in their local community, but they may come into hundreds of millions of dollars that they have to help local officials understand how to how to utilize. And it's not just FEMA funds. We have to overcome fragmented recovery and your emergency managers got to be able to recognize, you know, once they establish their recovery goals, what agencies provide different funding. And there's over 17 different agencies, if I understand correctly, that provide disaster funding or some type of funding down after a disaster. Which agencies do you grab the funding from? and put it together and harness it and use it for the greatest good to help you overcome. And that's what an emergency manager, a large portion of the emergency manager manager's job is. And so it's, it's not just response. We tend to focus too much on the response and not enough on the long-term recovery aspects. And so I hope through these state integration teams that we can help state and local governments start to truly 
plan for and and achieve, you know, their response and recovery goals, not mine. Kind of getting back into some of the response side of the things. We just had a a really large uh, fire here in Northern California, two of them. And then on the East Coast, you have these cyclone bomb uh, hitting over there with, (laughs) with, I I always love my weather guys. They'd like to come up with some funny terms. So uh, over there hitting the Northeast, uh, Boston, the Massachusetts, I mean, had that area where the, where the water, the ocean water came in and froze cars to the ground. So the recovery is going to start here uh, pretty shortly in the, in the springtime for all of that. What's that look like for, for you guys? And with, you know, now you're still recovering from the, the hurricane season. Now you get hit with this in, in January. What's that look like for you guys? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Welcome back for that short break, and let's uh, continue on. How's that impacting your your ability to get out there and uh, help out with those local agencies? Well, I mean, right now, um, if you look at the three major hurricanes and uh, the the Northern California wildfires, we still have 65% of our agency that is deployed uh, across the country, not only helping those four events, but we have, I think, over 30 open disasters right now as we speak in over 22 different jurisdictions, and that includes Puerto Rico and the, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. When it comes to the response, you know, I'm going to be the first one that lets everybody know that FEMA can't do it alone. And we have got to go back and really address specific roles and responsibilities when it comes to what the Federal Emergency Management Agency should be able to, to do, to implement and to do, uh, versus what state and local agencies all the way down to the citizen level. And one thing I've been very vocal about is, you know, we've got to stop looking at citizens as liabilities and start looking at citizens as the true first responder. And, you know, how are we training them to take action that are low to no cost actions they can take to be better prepared? Or how are we actually, you know, going back to the old civil defense in the 1950s of incorporating them into our activities and response plans, like basically putting cert teams on steroids and teaching, you know, citizens practical skills like CPR to how to shut off water valves and gas valves and different things. So I think we need a comprehensive overhaul in truly how we approach response, because I don't have enough people to do it. And the mission is growing daily uh, with new threats uh, like North Korea. And so the bottom line is, is I think that this is a great time to start having some collaborative discussions about the level of disaster and how we manage money and different things. And if you look at the number of disasters that we have in this country, 75% of them are typically under $41 million. What we learned going into Harvey is, is that we had too many staff deployed 
to a lot of disasters that are under that threshold of $40 million. And we've got to get to a point where states and local governments are comfortable managing disaster funds to that level without a huge federal footprint of staff to do it and, and to lead it you know, on behalf of a state and local government so that when the, the worst day hits, when New Madrid you know, occurs or Cascadia occurs, you know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency can truly do catastrophic response, uh, re- response and recovery. Um, that's where you're going to want us most, not in the, uh, the smaller $40 million disasters. I, I want to go circle back a little bit on the citizen response. I'm a big proponent of the community emergency response teams, as you mentioned. Can we really look at Citizen Corps and see what we can do to rejuvenate that and, and get it as on, on top of the, the ladder, if you will, that it was in the back? Or is this something that's going to kind of stay well, in the back burner because of the funding? Todd, I'm willing to look at anything, but I think I've, I've actually got a broader vision. I, you know, for the Be Ready campaign, we got to graduate past telling everybody to be ready for three days um, because it's an unrealistic financial ask in many households, you know, and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. The other thing that we got to do is, is that across the federal government perspective and in a state government or a local government, each one of these agencies is doing some level of readiness or preparedness campaigning like HHS and CDC, FEMA, you know, they're, they're, you know, NOAA has, you know, some pretty robust public awareness campaign efforts and that kind of thing. It's time to pull our resources together, come together, and ask each other what the goal is when it comes to helping citizens truly recognize their risk, their true risk and vulnerabilities, not only where they live, but where they work, where they visit, how to assess those risks, make the right decisions on level, the proper level of insurance, how they're going to communicate, you know, et cetera, to where they truly become you know, ready to be the first responder when called upon. And, you know, if you look at, you know, just the statistics, if, if you lived in Alabama, Todd, we have, uh, you know, a ton of tornadoes that go through there. If a tornado went barreling through your community and knocked your neighbor's house down and you, you happen to be there, you're going to turn into the first responder. How do you do simple search and rescue? What actions should you take to be able to do that? If you're involved in an active shooter, a majority of the FBI statistics uh, would suggest that the victims become the true first responder. How are we actually training them, incorporating them into our preparedness rather than just first responders saying, here's what it's going to look like when we respond to an active shooter event. We've got to start giving them tangible skills in what to do during those those types of events. So it's not just beefing up, you know, Citizen Corps and, and those types and, and CERT teams. It's we've got to get back into the classroom and, and you know, through the U.S. Department of Education. You know, we've got to teach people how to save money. We've got to teach people why they need insurance, not only for their household, but also for their business. You know, we need to make continuity of operations a part of all phases of emergency management and have those discussions. And we have to recognize how these campaigns change or how the response will change is something that we learned in uh, most recently, not only in the California wildfires, but also in Puerto Rico is, is that People are becoming more and more dependent on digital technology, cell phone technology, uh, but yet the systems that we're putting in place, they're not resilient, they're not redundant. And when there's a gap in service, it creates panic and a lack of situational awareness. So how do we collectively start to overcome those or do warning order communication in areas that don't have communication for several weeks? Uh, so there, there's a lot that we've learned, but the one thing is, is that never before, being the female administrator, I am more than willing to, to start a collaborative effort to start 
driving that whole community uh, preparedness and response aspect. Uh, two two things on the on the uh, technology. Uh, one is I want to talk a little bit about FirstNet, and then the other one is about EAS. And let's start with EAS first. The emergency alert system that's out there now. I know it goes over our cell phones and stuff like that for like the Amber Alerts, and and it's doable. But so how do we reach people that are now breaking away from cable and traditional uh, mediums uh, for online stuff? How do we reach them with an EAS? Uh, you know, that's an excellent question. And, you know, obviously with IPALS, that is, that is uh, definitely on the radar screen of those inside FEMA that are that are administering the IPALS program. It, it is a true problem that we face and a dynamic one. It's going to continue to change as technology, you know, goes through, go, goes forward. And so some of the discussions inside you know, FEMA now are, is, for example, we're starting to recognize that people are cutting the cord on cable and going to more streaming channels. So why doesn't FEMA have its own streaming network that teaches people how to mitigate their house to, you know, how, how to assess their risk and, and, you know, how to be better prepared. So those are some of the things that we're already starting to address internally is we've got to adapt as the citizens adapt on how they absorb information. But also, you know, I think when it comes to like social media and the other outlets that are out there, um, it's one thing to say you have to have a social media presence, but you know what we're starting to recognize is is that there are different social media platforms that work better in some phases of emergency management better than others. For example, I believe you know Twitter works in the response phase, not as effective in the longer term recovery phase, in my opinion. And so, what are the what are the social media tools? How do we you know not only recognize what's out there, but how do we use those to reach different populations at different phases of a disaster? That's always a tricky, uh, a tricky thing because especially like you know we go back to Facebook. Facebook was all the rage for a while, but now it seems to be uh, the thing that the kids don't want to do because it's not cool anymore. Because once old people start liking Facebook, it's, it's no longer cool. So how do you keep up with technology? Understand that's a that's an issue or, or trends, I suppose. That's one of those issues that we have to keep looking at and, and try to get in front of. And you're right about that. And that's kind of cool that you guys are looking at doing uh, some more innovative stuff with the internet and, and reaching out to people in that way. So uh, thank you for that. FirstNet, I've been hearing a lot about it. I, I, I went to AT&T's um, presentation on FirstNet. I think it's kind of, I'm kind of interesting. What do you think about FirstNet and do you think it's something that we're going to be able to utilize in the long term? Well, I definitely think that we can utilize FirstNet. Uh, as to far as far as what do I think about it? I, I don't know if that's up to me. Um, I think each state has already made their preference. You know, a majority of states have already opted into the FirstNet network. Quite honestly, I think I have a lot to learn about how it's being utilized, and I think that anytime we go into a system like that, we have to understand, you know, how it works before, during, and after a disaster. I just Anytime that we opt into systems and that kind of thing, we have to constantly evaluate what's working and what's not. Where are we versus where we need to be? And if we need to be somewhere else, how do we get there? Uh, where do you see the future of uh, FEMA going in the next four, three years? You know, I've got great staff inside FEMA. One of the things that I have inside the Federal Emergency Management Agency and, and what I want people at the state and local level to know is, is that uh, I have an incredibly dedicated staff. These guys work long hours. And, and I think that if the uh, local or state emergency managers that walk in this building that interact with the staff or could see it when it's activated, you know, the National Response Coordination Center is activated, that what they'll find is, is that a majority of the people inside FEMA understand the issues 
that local and state, you know, um, government officials face. It's just a matter of having a voice and being heard and being able to shape the program. So one of the things that we're doing internally is is creating an inclusive strategic plan process. And we're going to concentrate on three buckets. Uh, one, how do we create a culture of preparedness? Two, how do we truly become ready for the catastrophic d- d- disaster or catastrophic readiness? And then three, how do we reduce the complexity of FEMA programs? And those are going to be the three buckets that this agency concentrates on. And not everything conveniently fits into those three buckets, but the staff, based on reaching out to them and holding what we call discovery change sessions, inclusive sessions throughout the agency and with our, our stakeholders, uh, ultimately the ideas and the issues that we face or, or the things that we need to implement can fit into each one of those uh, into each one of those buckets, and so that's where we're faced there. Next, as I said, I've got dedicated staff, but the workforce structure inside FEMA uh, that we have to operate in is a little broken. Not only that, but I think that there are some major changes to the Stafford Act uh, that need to be made, and I, you know th- that need to be made. And one of the things that uh, I have found is that you know after going through the events that we went through. The Congress, the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, they are all ears and have been incredibly supportive of the agency, you know, asking me and asking us what needs to change um, to get better. And so there are changes that are being made in the housing realm. I think more changes uh, could potentially come with a third supplemental. Um, Major changes to FEMA or, or to the system could be coming through the third supplemental. I think we need to watch what comes forward. But we may be able to change mitigation forever and get it out of the recovery realm and put it all up front in the pre-disaster realm. You know, and that, that would be a very major change coming up. So I'm very excited about that. And I hope that, you know, the, the Congress will act to help us do that. And, and so there's a lot of changes that are coming as a result of going through. And uh, I'm truly excited to be here. FEMA's training in general is, is pretty decent, you know, I have to say. What can we do to encourage more people to participate in EMI programs and to standardize um, what an emergency manager is across the country? Well, that's great. Uh, I'm all for accreditations, you know, and and uh, consistent training. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in resource typing and NIMS and making sure that we have cross-trained staff. Uh, in, in regards to EMI, We've had internal discussions about what is truly the outcome that we're striving for based on all of the training, you know, that that we offer. Uh, And I don't think I'm ready to comment on truly what we're searching for at this time, but it is on our radar screen and something that we're truly working through. And it's not only the external training that we offer, uh, but also how, as I go back to the, you know, the, the first part of this interview is we've got to train together internally inside FEMA to create consistencies and camaraderies that will result, you know, into better program and program delivery out in the field. And so there's a lot that could be done. Um, but some of the some of the major gaps that I see across the country goes back to the disaster cost recovery. We have got to start focusing on how to correctly utilize, understand what you're entitled to after a presidential disaster declaration or Stafford Act disaster like Deepwater Horizon, where the Stafford Act um a non-Stafford Act disaster like Deepwater Horizon. What are you entitled to? How do you grab that money? How does the money come down? It doesn't all come at once, but how do you set up recovery goals around the funding you're entitled to and how the cash flow works around that grant funding and tie it all all together to do the greatest good? We are not concentrating on that aspect, which is the longest and hardest aspect that leads to the most amount of mistakes down the road. Nationwide, we got to put our fingers back on disaster cost recovery and how we manage 
a lot of funding. Okay, so here comes the toughest question of the day. What book or books do you recommend for somebody who is getting into emergency management and or if they're already in the job, uh, leadership? Hmm. Rumsfeld rules for uh, leadership. I like Rumsfeld's rules. All right. Um, pretty interesting read. Um, you know, where we are as a nation right now with the North Korea threat and everything else, I mean, there's a, there's a true gap in the um, in the way we do continuity of operations. We have, to, we have to resurrect national continuity programs and continuity planning and continuity of government planning across all levels of government, okay? And not only all levels of government, but also in the private sector. And uh, I can tell you, I, while I'm not going to endorse a book, the book that I'm currently reading is Raven Rock, and it's, uh, it's really interesting to see, you know, you know, go back into history and look at how the the public awareness campaigns were put forward. They were they were much more robust public awareness campaigns and empowering citizens back in the 50s than we're doing today. And we got to get that back. Um, mm-hmm. But it also goes into the importance of continuity and how the government works. And and um, you know, with North Korea threats and the changing threats in the cybersecurity world, we really need to focus more on continuity of operations. So how about that? We're coming up to the end here. Is there anything else you'd like to say to to us, to the merchant managers out there in uh, that listen to Ian Weekly? Yeah, I believe um, here again, you know, to me, a successful response and recovery is one that's federally supported, state managed, and locally executed. It's my job to figure out how to get this agency to help you execute and achieve, you know, all of your your preparedness, your response and recovery goals not dictate it, not run it for you. That's not the goal. You know, that, that's what we're, that's what I'm here to do. And hopefully uh, we'll, we'll accomplish that. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.